This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our speaker today is a graduate of our own. Uh, he, Thomas Ginsburg, did his, he grew up in this area and then did his undergraduate uh, degree, his law degree, and his doctorate in jurisprudence and social policy, all three uh, at Berkeley. Um, His publications are listed, and I won't repeat what's in the program in that regard because we want to give him maximum time. But I'll just make this remark that uh, since he left us uh, for this brilliant career that he's pursued uh, in universities abroad, including in Japan, uh, University of uh, Illinois, uh, and uh, now at the University of Chicago in two departments, the law school and the political science department, he has become one of the really outstanding experts internationally on the questions of constitutionalism and political development, and um, he's going to speak on that um, uh, today. Uh, as I started to say, since he left here, there's been a huge interest in constitution-making and nation-building uh, since the so-called end of the, of the Cold War, of course. Uh, another, and he's right in the middle of the, all the studies that have developed in that area and has made a great name in that field in, in collaboration with such other eminent scholars as our new dean at the law school, um, uh, Shuji Chowdhury and others. Uh, another great development, of course, has been the emergence of China as a near superpower. Uh, a little more today than it was yesterday because they have a new nuclear sub that went through the Malacca Straits uh, in the last two days. Um, but the emergence of Asia generally as a theater of enormous security and, and uh, political importance internationally, and Tom is in the middle of that field as well. He's uh, capable in Asian languages. He's written a comparative book on, um, on, 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 on a rule of law and judicial review in that area. And then finally, in the more theoretical field of rule of law and its practical ramifications, he's been a major scholarly voice in that area as well. Those of us, proud to say myself included in a minor role, who were his professors at Berkeley are enormously proud of of the great stature that he's achieved, not just because he's famous, but because his scholarship is so excellent, so insightful, and so marvelously original. So we're very privileged to have uh, Thomas Ginsburg as our Jefferson lecturer on the question, were the framers right about constitutional design? Welcome, Tom. Well, thanks to everyone for coming today. And before I begin, I really have to thank the committee for uh, giving me this tremendous honor of giving a Jefferson lecture. Uh, Perhaps more than your average Jefferson lecturer, I know exactly what that means. I've been coming to them since I was an undergraduate, uh, and I'm just deeply moved and honored to be asked to give one. So I would like to thank the committee and also to thank uh, Harry Scheiber in particular for his indefatigable support of my career in general, but also for the honor today. Um, To ask, as my title does, were the framers right about constitutional design, uh, is to risk in many quarters ridicule, approbation, and even physical violence. Um, 
you know, we all know that we live in a country that was blessed with a set of giants at the outset. As Thomas Jefferson said in a letter to Adams in 1787, it really is an assembly of demigods. Reverence for our Constitution and those who created it is one of the hallmarks of American political culture. People treat it with quasi-religious reverence. Commentators from both ends of the political spectrum uh, declare their loyalty and allegiance. This view of the framers as uh, masters of rational deliberation, of masters of applied political theory, I think is even stronger when we look at other recent exercises in constitutional design. Egypt 2012, the framers of the Egyptian constitution don't look so focused as those in the previous painting. Brazil, 1988. The framers look a little too focused, too committed to their uh, particular projects. So this view of of the American founders as being a set of geniuses uh, is uh, well entrenched in our political culture and may indeed have a kernel of truth in it. The funny thing, though, is when we look at their own views of their handiwork, they were a little more skeptical. So uh, Benjamin Franklin, on the very last day of the Constitutional Convention, admitted that he said, uh, as you can see, I confess there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve. For when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably uh, assemble those men with all their prejudices, passions, errors of opinion, and local interests, and selfish views. Can a perfect production be expected? I consent to the Constitution because I expect it no better and because I'm not sure that it is not the best. Well, not exactly a ringing endorsement. Uh, It's close. It says, well, it's as good as we can do. George Washington, about a week later, I wish the Constitution which is offered had been made more perfect, but I sincerely believe it is the best that could be obtained at this time. All right, good enough for government work. In the Federalist debates, which occurred immediately after the, uh, this, the, the previous two quotes, uh, we see a, a debate about the imperfections of the document which had been produced. And Hamilton, quoting David Hume, notes that uh, there will be a chance there, uh, and the, that the political community, on the last line, must correct the mistakes, which they inevitably fall into in their first trials and experiments. Indeed, much of the debate in the Federalist Papers, if you go back and read them, is really about the question of whether to amend the Constitution before ratification or after ratification. But imperfection is built into the very earliest understandings of the document. Madison, in Federalist 43, notes that useful alterations will be suggested by experience, could not be but foreseen. It was requisite, therefore, that a mode for introducing them should be provided. In other words, the very um, idea of imperfection was built into the Constitution and its design through the introduction of an amendment procedure. And that's certainly something that the framers did, which has been very influential um, and very helpful in our own political community, one that other Constitution makers have almost uniformly followed. The next question is, what do Al Sharpton and Rand Paul have in common? And the answer, of course, is that they're among a group of recent people, far bigger than this set, uh, who have proposed constitutional amendments for various pet projects. As you might guess, Al Sharpton's proposals are a little different than Rand Paul's. John Paul Stevens, in the top center, has recently written an important book uh, calling for the amendment of the Constitution to overrule, if you will, the Citizens United case, which has so corrupted our political culture. 
Um, so there is and always has been a kind of uh, groundswell of people who are calling for constitutional amendments. Something like 10,000 proposals introduced in Congress since the founding of the Republic. Obviously, only a small handful of these have been successful, only 15 since uh, the early 1800s. And so there's always kind of a move for amendment. Now, um, the three people on top might be familiar to you. You may not all know the two on the bottom. On the right, appropriately, is um, um, Mark Levin, who is uh, otherwise known as the great one, Fox News commentator. Uh, on the left is Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig. And both of them are united uh, in that they're not only calling for constitutional amendments, but calling for a new way of going about them, different from what we've uh, achieved in our past history. Many of you may not, uh, or may be familiar with Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution and from your um, high school civics days. Remember that, uh, you know, it takes two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states to pass a constitutional amendment. There is, however, another provision in Article 5, which allows the calling of a constitutional convention. That is, um, if two-thirds of the states, state legislatures, call for a constitutional convention, we can re engage in rewriting the Constitution. Indeed, earlier this year, uh, Michigan became the 34th state legislature to call for a new constitutional convention. Um, and they sent, a, they sent this to John Boehner. Turns out that some of the earlier states have since retracted their proposal, so at this moment there aren't two-thirds of active calls, although on one interpretation, and this has been pushed by some, including Mark Levin, it's good enough, uh, and that we should have a constitutional convention. Uh, imagine if we did. What kinds of issues would we talk about? What I would like to do today is um, actually engage in a thought experiment. Um, it may or may not be realistic to think that we will get a constitutional convention. It's certainly unrealistic to think that if we did, the framers could be reincarnated and come back and participate in it. But that's what I want to uh, propose as a way of thinking about it. Suppose we had a constitutional convention and that the framers were confronted with the question of what exactly we might do. What should we do? How should we go about writing a constitution of the United States? in 2014 as opposed to 1787. I submit that the way they would approach the problem is exactly the way they approached the problem back then. And that is, um, to use, uh, to, to summarize, empirically. The framers were, of course, living at a time when there was no precedent for a written constitution. But they were well-versed and well-read in literature uh, dating back to the ancient Greeks, they had read philosophy, they had read history. Indeed, it may have been the last generation that had read literally everything that there was to be read in the language which they um, worked in. And um, the way they approached these things when confronted with the problem of real world institutional design uh, was to look at what had happened before. So in the spring of 1787, as he prepared for the Constitutional Convention, James Madison plunged into a thorough study of historical confederacies, ancient and modern, from the ancient Greeks to what he called modern, the Dutch uh, Republic and the German Federation of the time, and engaged in a kind of um, inquiry, an empirical and comparative inquiry, to understand what it was that had worked and had not worked. His, in his inquiry was comprehensive but schematic. He focused just on six cases. And for each one of these, he looked at the allocation of power between the center and the sub-governments, 
He looked at um, various rules of representation that worked in these confederations, and he considered in his language the virtues and vices, we would call them costs and benefits, of the various approaches to uh, federal system design. This really informed his approach to the um, Constitutional Convention and informed in many ways the Virginia Plan, the famous Virginia Plan, because Madison concluded from this historical study that the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, that the weaknesses of earlier federations had all lain in having a central government that was too weak and subunits that were too strong. So he came in thinking um, that we, there would, had to be a strong center. And this indeed made sense when you consider the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation under which they had been uh, living at that time. The point is that the founders saw, thought their task was trying to reason their way to good institutions in a fragile world where Republican government was a rarity, where republics in all previous instances had failed, and uh, they recognized in, this, in, in doing so that there was something to learn from past experience. And so they engaged in, in Madison's famous notes on ancient and modern confederacies in empirical and comparative study. And that's exactly what I want to do today. So I'm informed here by some work I've been doing for the last several years in something called the Comparative Constitutions Project. We have a website you can go to, which is an effort to um, try to collect the texts of all constitutions written for independent nation states since 1789, since the founding of the United States. Um, this is a pretty easy exercise in the sense of identifying the documents for most countries nowadays. There is a single written document called a constitution. There's a few outlier cases. Saudi Arabia, for example, has no written constitution under the theory that the Holy Quran is the constitution. Um, uh, Britain, of course, famously doesn't have a codified constitution. Um, so in looking at documents, we usually will look at the document called a constitution. If there is no such thing, we'll look at a bill of rights or a statute that sets up a branch of government. Fortunately, for most countries, it's fairly easy to identify what the Constitution is. And one of the things we've discovered in this project, which has taken much longer than we had hoped, is that there are a lot more constitutions out there than we had imagined when we started. That's because, of course, most constitutions do not last. As I reported in a book written in 2010, uh, the average lifespan, the predicted lifespan of a national constitution for all countries since 1789 is only 19 years. It makes the American experiment seem all the more exceptional. Uh, and it also suggests that there's something at stake in thinking about constitutional design, something normative, something um, it would be very useful, in other words, to be able to, to try to identify principles that were good and principles that were bad, things that work and things that don't. Now, this slide uh, shows the spread of the idea of the written constitution over time. You might think about it as a kind of technology of governance, right? It's not all governments in all times in human history have had written constitutions. It's really an invention of the American framers. And this is certainly one of their most influential ideas, uh, the idea that we ought to codify all our core principles, our core values, and our core structures of government into a single written document. That's been an enormously successful project. The top line on this chart, this figure, shows the number of countries in the world on the left axis there. Uh, roughly quadrupling since 1789, as empires have broken up. The dashed line just below it shows the number of countries which have a written constitution, a discrete written constitution. And the interesting thing here is that those two lines converge over time. 
so that you know, sometime early in the 20th century, it becomes a norm that when you set up your new state, the first thing you do is draft a constitution. Um, the, bar, the vertical lines show the number that are written in any given year. And one can see here that you know, it's a common phenomenon. Typically following great crises in world affairs, the springtime of nations, the end of World War I, World War II, the Cold War, there are episodes in which constitutions are written. The question which I really have is, um, can someone who is writing a constitution today, what is there to be learned from this experience? What would the framers do if they were starting over? Let me say quite clearly what I'm not going to do in the lecture. I'm not going to ask the question about whether anyone has in learned from us or whether we've influenced other countries. Periodically in the legal and political science literature, you'll see projects uh, focused on the influence of the United States Constitution abroad. There's a lot of this around the bicentennial. Recently, there have been some uh, reports about how we're losing influence in our current mood of great national decline. Um, I'm not interested in that, though it is to some degree relevant and uh, may mention some facts about it. Um, but I neither want to be celebratory or somber about it. I just want to, um, um, I don't want to focus on what, who's learned from us. I also don't really want to get into the question of what we should change in this country. We can talk about that in questions and answers if you're interested in. Uh, but there's also a small literature on uh, calling for changing the American Constitution and particular institutions. There was even a book a few years ago on uh, competing authors uh, offering their proposal for what was the stupidest provision of the Constitution. Uh, and that answers range from the Electoral College to equal representation in the Senate to the um, rule in the Seventh Amendment that uh, you, know, you get a civil jury trial for all suits over $20. Uh, note to Constitution makers, there's such a thing as inflation. But again, I don't want to ask exactly what we should change. Um, the point is, uh, you know, I want to ask what it is in terms of design principles that the framers had. So some of the things that they came up with, the Electoral College is a good example, were not well-reasoned uh, based in a kind of theory of institutional design. They were political compromises. And it's not surprising that there are many critics of those kind of things. On the other hand, the framers had very deep ideas about, the, about human nature, about the structures of societies and um, the nature of republics. And it's that in which they were, I think they left their best work for, right? Those are the questions on which they thought they were providing universal answers. And so that's what I would like to focus on. I'm going to focus on three topics in particular. I think there are many more I could take, um, but I'm going to focus on war, uh, power, and change of the Constitution. So let me start with war. Um, all right, well, if you think back to 1787, war was, and war power was weighed very heavily on the minds of the framers. The nascent republic was in big trouble. The, Constitutional uh, the Continental Congress, which had been created by the Articles of Confederation, lacked the power to tax. It had the power to make treaties, but it didn't have the power to implement them. And so it made a peace treaty with Great Britain, which the states were then reneging on. The British weren't happy about this. They refused to dismantle their forts up in Canada, and there were border skirmishes happening. So they felt a great threat from the British. To the south, the Spanish had closed the Mississippi River. To the west, there were various Indian tribes. And uh, the situation was one where it really provoked the federal convention in the first place. They were so worried about security. What were their questions about war? 
Well, um, they, of course, come, we know, to the idea that Congress should be the power that has uh, the power, to, should have the power to declare war. Heavily influenced by Machiavelli, they thought that the, an unrestrained executive would seek aggrandizement through foreign policy and foreign adventures. And so very early on in the federal convention, they thought that the power to uh, engage in war should be with Congress. As the discussion went on, Madison and Elbridge Gerry uh, proposed that the word declare be substituted instead of making war. So the initial idea was that Congress should have the power to make war. Didn't really know what that was. And so somewhat on a whim, they said declare war. Their idea was that Congress, if Congress could declare war, Congress would be involved in all major foreign policy decisions, whereas in a defensive war or some situation where there was a need for speed, speedy response, the executive would be able to act immediately without being hamstrung. So they were seeking, in some sense, to balance the war power between Congress and the president. They, had, um, um, they didn't talk much about it, but, of course, they also said that the president would be commander-in-chief. And one of the great constitutional questions of our time is what exactly the extent of that power is for the president. Under the Bush administration, it was a very expansive view, such that under the theory of the executive branch at that time, Congress couldn't pass law about uh, how to wage war. Um, and, of course, others say, well, Congress really has the residual power. So there's a big internal debate in the United States about the residual power. Um, John Jay, uh, in, if, or one of the early Federalists, argued that the scheme that they came up with, with Congress involved in declaring war, would mean that there would be less war. Not only fewer just causes of war will be given by the national government, but it will also be in their power to accommodate and settle them amicably. It's a position that, in some sense, anticipates a lot of international relations scholarship, as I'll come to in a minute. We also have live constitutional questions about the division of power between the executive and the president. As many of you may know, we haven't actually had a declared war since World War II, and only four in American history. Um, And so there's a fear in our modern era of executive aggrandizement, exactly what the framers thought might occur. Will Congress ever act? Well, they've passed the War Powers Act, And the presidents have always asserted that that's unconstitutional. Yet sometimes the presidents do act in accordance with the War Powers Act, um, notwithstanding their view that they don't have to. In my opinion, assigning the war power, the power to declare war to Congress, has had some restraining effect on the president. Um, And, you know, we we can observe this in some of the skirmishes that have happened since the passage of the War Powers Act. Um, But generally speaking, Congress doesn't want to get involved in war decisions. Why? Well, because they can only lose. Um, Political science literature suggests that successful wars get attributed to the president. Uh, Even if Congress goes along with it, they won't get much political credit out of it. Far better, if you're a congressman, to just let the president take the lead, as Congress is doing now with Obama in Syria. If it works well, they can take some of the credit, but he probably won't be assigned much. If uh, it fails, they can blame Obama as I'm sure they will if it goes badly. So um, the idea is that Congress lacks the political incentives to actually exercise the power they're given in the Constitution. I want to tie this to the international relations literature, particularly the idea of Jay, that having Congress involved would lead to fewer wars and more settlement. Um, The democratic peace literature, for those who aren't academics, is uh, one of the few things in which we could say there's something like a, a law of social science. And the finding is that democracies don't go to war with each other. Pretty much a a universal historical truth. There's a lot of debate as to why, 
but um, it is a pretty strong finding. It's not to say that democracies are more peaceful. They fight a lot with other countries, and when they do go to war, they tend to win. And so there's a lot of empirical regularities there that, that, that need to be explained. Some of the literature suggests that uh, the, the advantages of democracy might flow, in my view, from the involvement of the legislature. So to begin with, consider the normal um, conflict. Let's take Obama in Syria last year when he was, or two years ago, I guess, when he was first uh, proposing to Congress to get permission to go to war in Syria. Um, you know, Obama and Assad are engaged in a kind of strategic calculation where each is trying to understand the other's intentions. Um, you know, if Assad doesn't believe Obama, then he's going to continue to do what he's doing. If he does believe Obama, he's going to maybe back down uh, to avoid being um, hit by the United States, which is a stronger party. The role of Congress in this kind of bargaining game, I think, is at least twofold. First of all, Congress can prevent the president from getting into bad or unpopular conflicts. They can screen. They can stop us from getting into wars that we aren't going to win. That might explain why democracies win the wars they get into. Um, in addition, in the bargaining game, in my example with Assad, they add information. If Obama went to Congress and Congress said, yes, we want you to go, there's one thing Assad can be sure of, that Obama is about to attack. Right? It would be, having done that, it's very hard politically for Obama to back down. It's very hard for the Congress to back down, having approved uh, a, a, a foreign war. Having legislators involved might allow better signaling, better uh, sending of signals in the international plane, might even allow better aggregation of information in the United States. So legislatures might help democracies to win war, and that might be part of the secret of the democratic peace. How have other countries uh, written their constitutions? Well, this shows over time, um, in the dashed line, the executive, and the red line, the legislature, who has the power to declare war in national constitutions. And you can see that the United States' approach of giving the legislature the power to declare war has not been very popular. Although, to some degree, the whole question is interesting, and we can come back to this in questions if anyone's interested, uh, because declaring war doesn't even have any meaning, really, anymore. No one declares wars anymore. Yet constitution makers continue to assign the power. So there seems to be a trend away from the American approach. On the other hand, if we consider war power more broadly, not just declaring war, but uh, giving um, Congress some sort of approval authority over, let's say, the actions of commander-in-chief, we find a much broader set of countries have legislative involvement. So this is something like 70% of countries have some legislative involvement in, uh, excuse me, yeah, um, some 50% of countries have some legislative involvement in um, war policy. And that seems to be pretty significant. What I do in this um, part of the paper is to look at the data. Now, I have an advantage here in that there's a huge scholarly community studying the democratic peace. And they have data that uh, uh, sort of aggregates every international conflict, actually since about 1800. And they look at crisis bargaining, they look at sort of threats to other countries, but they also look at um, instances that actually erupt in force. And they have different sort of levels of violence, if you will. They define a war as a conflict that involves more than 1,000 battle deaths. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to compare the constitutional assignment of powers with these wars that have been uh, looked at by other scholars. 
And the question, of course, is whether you have, if you have con uh, congressional involvement, legislative involvement, does it lead to less war? Now, this other literature um, uses what I, call, what I refer to here as a dyadic setup. It, basically, for any particular pair of countries, it asks, in a given year, if they go to war, each country is either an initiator or a target. So there's a state A, state B, and so um, there's this massive amount of data. What I do in the results I'm about to report is I um, look at the relationship between constitutional power and war, and I control for a few things. I control for whether or not uh, one state is more powerful than another, right? That's going to lead, if you might th think about, um, you know, the United States might be um, more likely to invade Grenada than it would, uh, you know, France, for example. Um, so relative capability is a predictor of war. I also look at whether both countries are democratic and also whether they share a border because borders are the source of most international conflicts. In looking at this data, I'm just going to report this uh, to you. Um, what these uh, figures mean, the sign, minus or plus, indicates whether you're going to get more or less war with the condition that I'm looking at. And uh, the asterisks indicate levels of statistical significance. So um, just to summarize, every single one of these signs is negative. So if you have legislative involvement, the first four rows, you're much less likely, you are less likely to get um, uh, use of force or war. Um, and the statistically significant ones have to do with the approval of commander action, et cetera, the ones with more asterisks. It's also interesting that silence, constitutions that are totally silent on the question, actually lead to less war. That's an interesting finding. So far, it seems like the framers were right, right? They said if you involve the legislature, you're going to get less war. Um, and so maybe we ought to suggest that in our new, or in our fictitious constitutional convention we've called, that we would keep the rule as it is. There's a problem, though, and this is what happens when you look at data. I look not just at selection of wars, but what happens in the wars that you get into. So again, there's kind of this international bargaining process that leads to war, uh, and sometimes there will be settlement, sometimes you'll miscalculate, if you will, and we'll get all the way to violent and destructive conflict. And what the findings uh, suggest is that um, I'm looking here at outcomes. Are you more likely to win or lose if you have a um, legislative involvement? And interestingly, uh, what we find is that legislative involvement in, either the, in the initiator always leads to uh, less win uh, and also leads to the less win on the part of the target. It seems to confuse or confound that bargaining process. On the other hand, legislative involvement in either state leads to more stalemate. Why might that be? Well, one theory is that what's going on here is something like what we would call the selection of disputes for litigation, right? That if you think about it in models of litigation, um, two parties always settle unless, you know, they're really, really stubborn or they have different levels of information or it's a really, really, really close case, right? Because it's always, litigation's always costly. It's always a deadweight loss, to use the economist term. Um, what we find is that this probably war is a lot like litigation, you're probably, when you have legislative involvement in screening wars, one side or the other is settling most of the cases. And the cases you get are the ones where it's a really close case. Furthermore, once you get into war, and I think the United States, say, in 2004 or 2005 is a good example, um, a legislature which is committed to going to war is going to have exactly the same problems as a president might in terms of backing off. 
Congress isn't going to admit that the Iraq war is a bad idea because they're all going to lose their seats, right? So um, one of the problems of democracy and legislative involvement in particular may be that you stick with bad wars for too long. Where does this leave us in terms of the Constitutional um, Convention? I'm not sure. It's kind of a mixed result. The framers were right that you get less war. They didn't really think about, uh, I mean, their view was that you would win the wars you got into. Uh, But there doesn't seem to be very strong evidence for that. It's a possibility. I think you'd have to uh, probably look at the scale of these wars that you end up getting into. If they're really minor things and they end up being a stalemate, no big deal. If they're really major, then probably um, there might be some problem with political, too much commitment on the part of the legislature. Second part of the talk. The framers thought a lot about power. They were um, very concerned with um, dividing it. They were very concerned with um, trying to find ways to pit interest against interest in order to ensure liberty. When one thinks about the um, central issues, they thought a lot about diversity, how to deal with a diverse political community. And they thought a lot about the executive. If you go back and you read the um, accounts of the Constitutional Convention, they talk a lot about executive power. Until two weeks before the end of the Constitutional Convention, um, the plan was for Congress to pick the president, which would make us kind of a parliamentary system. And the reason this broke down, actually, is that um, the the so-called Great Compromise, where the large states and the small states came to the design of our modern Congress... That is, a House of Representatives with proportional representation and a Senate in which the states would be represented qua Senate. And so the problem is if this bicameral body was to elect the president, how would it work? Would they all sit together? Well, that would obviously privilege the uh, populous states. On the other hand, if you had one vote per state, you might, you know, that would make these, the smaller states stronger. And they couldn't agree. So they gave it to a special committee, which ended up scrapping the thing entirely and coming up with that wonderful institution, which we all know as the Electoral College. It was, as they admitted right away, a political compromise and one which they uh, realized was very complicated. And it's always on the top of the list when people make make, uh, suggestions for things we would get rid of in the current um, American Constitution. They debated once they decided um, that the executive would be elected in this way. They still debated how long the president should serve, whether it would be plural or singular. Um, and to some degree, these questions are still with us today. We have the, the large debate on the unitary president. I don't think that the founders anticipated the modern plebiscitary presidency, where we vote for one person and that, and that person is supposed to you know, do it all. Um, we blame him or her for, for every, every wrong that, that occurs. It um, is pretty odd when you think about it, the idea that one person ought to be able to do everything that is required. Many political systems don't do that. Many of the Indian tribes where I live in my part of the country would have two different chiefs, a chief for war and a chief for peace. Pirate ships, which were kind of floating governments in their own way, would often have a captain for war and a captain for navigation. Um, And yet somehow we think we can have one person who can do literally everything. It's not true at our state and local level governments, right? Um, You know, when we go to vote next week, we're all going to vote for, you know, well, it depends. I'm not sure if if, uh, the governor is up in California, but, you know, we vote for multiple offices. We have a divided executive. We vote for attorney general. We vote for secretary of state. 
you know, at the local level, I'm sure you're all paying close attention to the cliffhanger, which is the Alameda County coroner's race. Um, you, we vote for all kinds of officials and on the idea that there's specialization. When it comes to the national government, we don't do that. And um, that seems like something we might think about, whether that's really the right way to go. Now, there's a large debate in political science on these forms of government known as presidentialism and parliamentarism, uh, as well as a new form called semi-presidentialism. And there's really enormous literature on the merits of these things. Um, I'm going to suggest that maybe the plebiscitary presidency is not such a good idea, although it's, uh, the literature is pretty confused. All right, so this just shows the trends. The top line at the beginning is presidentialism, the darkest line. And you see the number of political systems that have a presidential system. The middle line is parliamentarism. And you can see that that, you know, sometime around 1960 surpassed presidentialism as the most popular form of government. And finally, since, and really booming since the end of the Cold War, is the, the, what's called the French model of semi-presidential system, in which, which is characterized, I think, by two executives, by a president who's directly elected, sitting with a head of government who is responsible to the parliament. And, you know, some people say you choose that because you think you can get the best of both worlds. Sometimes countries choose it because they've got a divided political system. They want to give something to each side. But it's become the default model. It is the uh, plurality of political systems today have a semi-presidential system. Now, um, whether or not it's a, it's a good thing is hard to assess. Um, but I think it is safe to say that Pure presidentialism is on the decline. Again, you know, you think about, can one man do it all? What's the advantage of having one man do it all? Accountability. We get to vote every four years and blame one person for, every, for the sum of all our benefits and costs during the period. On the other hand, there's a real risk of, of cognitive and other overload by having it all concentrated in one person. The literature on presidentialism is very critical. It suggests that in many countries, having a single person is going to be very, very divisive and damaging. Imagine an ethnically diverse society like, say, Kenya, which is a presidential system. In Kenya, um, as, uh, you know, it is, the presidency becomes a winner-take-all institution. And whoever wins feels a need to give patronage to his particular tribe or group, shutting out the other sides. In the words of a, uh, or with the title of a well-known book on Kenya, uh, when there was a switch in parties early in the uh, 2000s, uh, the new attitude was, it's our turn to eat at the trough of the state. And this means, of course, that the other side is shut out from representation. So that's certainly a risk of presidentialism in a diverse country like ours. We haven't suffered it, but still. Another risk of presidentialism is the opposite, and that's the gridlock problem. Because presidential systems, uh, you know, inherently create a division of power between the Congress and the presidency, as in Madison's design, you have in many, many cases um, total gridlock. And I'm not saying this is going to happen in the United States. But one can see in the current political mood how in a, a system of less robust institutions, there might be a desire for some kind of savior to cut through the gridlock and you would have democratic breakdown. It's happened in many, many countries. Indeed, the comparative politics literature suggests that uh, democratic breakdown is associated with presidential systems. Now, it's not, um, you know, the most recent studies say that it's not the fault of presidentialism. It's the fact that unstable countries choose this particular model of government. 
But either way, there's certainly some sort of association. And so that one sees in new constitutional projects that no countries have adopted presidentialism unless they had it already. That suggests that in our constitutional convention, my fictitious constitutional convention, we might stick with it. But we might not. I think that there's some possibility that even if we did, um, uh, well, you know, we might think twice about the, um, the length of the term of the presidency. That is, um, the, uh, and this was debated very intensely um, um, on the, by the founders. Um, you know, the initial idea was that it would be seven years, actually, and non-renewable. There would be a term limit in the U.S. Constitution. They ended up getting rid of that. Uh, and coming to the system that we have. I'd like to talk just a minute about term limits. In the debate, uh, George Mason said, um, had a theory that someone in the last term of office, at the right before they would uh, return to being among their constituents, this person would act in the public interest. Why? They would be thinking about their friends and neighbors back home. They would be focused on the public good. The alternative view is that, um, of course, power, desire for power would breed a hunger for it, and a term limit would lead someone to stay on. Going to the second uh, quote here, Hamilton said, as the object of his ambition, that is the person who's uh, coming up to the end of his term, would be to prolong his power, it is probable that in case of a war he would avail himself of the emergency to evade or refuse a degradation from his place. In other words, create a crisis uh, and stick around. And that's, again, something we see in many, many countries. Thomas Jefferson thought the failure to include term limits in the U.S. Constitution was uh, one of its great errors. As he said, that uh, the people have the power of removing him every fourth year, uh, but it's a power which will not be exercised. People will stay in office forever. Now, in the United States, we actually got very lucky here because the Constitution doesn't say anything about a term limit or didn't in the first uh, version before the 21st Amendment. Um, but um, what, it did, what we did have was Washington, who was the first president, and he very wisely uh, decided to step down after a second term. He didn't want to stay in office. And this created a kind of unwritten constitutional amendment, in a way, um, and it was observed for many years. Actually, a very famous instance uh, regarding this unwritten constitutional amendment came with Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt um, had actually inherited the term of McKinley after McKinley was assassinated. And so he served in office for three years, then ran on his own, and then stepped down saying, you know, there's a two-term limit. I can't run again. But four years later, he changed his mind and decided to run on the Bull Moose Party. And he was up giving a speech one day when someone came along and said, uh, a, a, a crazy fellow, tried to shoot him um, on the grounds that a man should not be president three times. In other words, someone was trying to enforce this unwritten constitutional norm of the time that there should be um, a term limit. Roosevelt was lucky. He wrote very long speeches. And actually, he had a 50-page speech, which, is, which took part of the bullet, as did his glasses case. It actually did penetrate his skin, and he continued to give the speech, which I will not do if one of you decides to shoot me now to put you out of your misery. Um, the point is that we were kind of lucky and as a matter of constitutional design, I think most, most democratic constitution makers now do put in a term limit. But this leads us to the question of why. In some sense, the whole idea of a fixed term is somewhat odd. It means that we, the people, can't continue to have, let's say, Barack Obama for another four years, even if he's, you know, 
popular among 60 or 70 percent of the country. On the other hand, it sometimes means we are stuck with people who have been proven to be incompetent and lame. And, um, and this is, in some sense, maybe the advantage of the parliamentary system, and one reason why most countries uh, have been choosing it. Indeed, no country, as I said, which has not had it before. Let's imagine again, and I'll go down here, what would have happened to various American presidents if, let's say, a sustained period of popularity at 40% or below would lead to your easy ouster in a uh, parliamentary vote? Well, Richard Nixon would have met that, you know, in 1973. It's not a great example because the system did work to get rid of Nixon, just took a little longer than it might have otherwise. Um, Jimmy Carter probably would have been gone by 79. On the other hand, and oh, George W. Bush, yeah, definitely 2006 or so, he would, we'd, we'd be done. We could have moved on. On the other hand, the popular presidents might be able to stay if we allowed, got rid of term limits, and moved to a parliamentary form of government where the accountability was constant. Um, Reagan, clearly very popular by the end. Bill Clinton, extremely popular. And think where, what a different place we'd be if he'd been president for another year or two. So the point is that uh, this might be something to look at. Certainly, if we were starting afresh, I doubt we'd come up with the precise system that we have. It seems to be unwieldy. We have a weird way of selecting the president that sometimes leads to minority presidents who do not even have 50% of the vote. We would probably change the way we vote and maybe even uh, the idea of having terms in the first place by moving to a parliamentary system or semi-presidential one. I want to turn now to my third theme, which is change. Um, Obviously, as I said before, this was an important theme of the founders. They recognized that uh, their document was imperfect. They recognized that change would be required. As Jefferson famously wrote, some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of Covenant, too sacred to be touched. Going on, um, I know that laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths disclosed and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also and keep pace with the times. The question is really how well we've done in this regard. Madison, I should say, also um, had a theory that um, changing the Constitution would be required. In a bit of propaganda in Federalist 43, he said, the mode, of the, convention, the mode preferred by the convention is stamped with every mark of propriety. It guards against the extreme facility, which would render the Constitution too mutable, and extreme difficulty, which might perpetuate its discovered faults. It is the Goldilocks theory, right? Not too easy to change, not too, um, not too um, rigid either. And uh, this is what they thought they were getting. Now... It's hard to know if they got that right. The 10,000 different proposals I referred to earlier to amend the Constitution, I'm sure many of them were not worth adopting. Some of them keep coming up over and over again. Um, Some of them are about political grandstanding. Knowing that constitutional amendment is basically impossible, members of Congress will propose all kinds of things. Uh, and many, sometimes to overturn Supreme Court opinions, sometimes to uh, favor their pet political causes, things like requiring the Bible to be read in school, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, um, and um, various other changes. And it may be that if we had an actual realistic culture of constitutional amendment, we might get better proposals in Congress. Uh, 
The other thing, of course, the consequence of having a rigid view, a rigid uh, system of constitutional amendment, is that our system has survived in part by uh, judicial reinterpretation of the document, leading us all, in some sense, to be hostages to Anthony Kennedy, who is a perfectly nice guy. But it's hard to say why he should be making decisions that uh, affect much of our lives. Now, when scholars look at the U.S. Constitution um, in comparative perspective, one question is, you know, how rigid is it compared to others? And it's actually a very tricky social science question to answer for reasons, technical reasons I can get into. But looking at uh, five different indicators, um, one sees that on cross-national indicators of amendment difficulty, the U.S. Constitution seems to be extremely rigid. It's the most rigid under the first, uh, the first and third and fourth, second out of 42 uh, on Lorenz's index. On my own index uh, in 2009, we, have a, we rate it almost, uh, almost as hard as the hardest constitution to amend out of 440 in history. It seems to be pretty difficult. Some say that it, this difficulty is exactly why the constitution has endured. It's a common claim. If we made it, you know, more flexible, then the Constitution would lose its value as a kind of sacred document, which we all revere. It would become a mere policy, uh, sort of repository of particular policies that happen to be favored at particular moments. And looking around the world at other constitutions, one sees examples of this. One sees constitutions that seem to have a lot of sort of interest group uh, benefits that that are written into the text, very thick documents. India's is about 145 pages. Um, and um, it makes it, you know, in some sense, almost a different meaning of what a constitution is supposed to do. So the argument is that rigidity has helped us. Indeed, our constitution is the longest lasting ever. This is the most enduring constitutions. Um, and you see a lot of Western European countries. And yet, I think it's pretty easy to debunk the claim that rigidity alone is responsible. Um, In this 2010 book, um, we analogize the United States Constitution to the woman in this picture. This woman is a woman named Jean Calment. She was the um, oldest human being ever recorded when she died in 1997 at the age of 122 in France. Um, They asked her, what is your secret to long life? And Jean Calment said, you know, I smoked till I was 117. You know, I gave it up then, but it didn't make me feel any better, so I went back the next year. I uh, drank, you know, port wine by, you know, significant amounts every day, um, and I ate chocolate and olive oil. Now, notwithstanding the benefits of some of those things, you know, I think if that's your exclusive diet, you wouldn't be predicted to live a long time. And yet she did. This is basically our view of the United States Constitution. It happened to last a long time, one of the most long-lasting, but it probably did so in spite of that feature of being overly rigid. And what we find when we look at all countries, and we have this kind of predictive model of constitutional lifespan, is that it is uh, flexibility and not uh, rigidity that predicts constitutional longevity. uh, Earlier this year, I was actually in uh, Oslo. Uh, because it's the 200th anniversary of the Norwegian Constitution. So they asked me to come and give my comparative reflections on the Norwegian Constitution. And I I showed this slide, uh, and then I showed this slide, which is the world's oldest yoga teacher, um, 92 years old, uh, and uh, the Norwegian Constitution of 1814. It's an incredibly flexible document. To change it requires a two-thirds vote in Parliament, in a single House of Parliament, with an intervening election. 
so that one group can't you know, manipulate it. They have to kind of go back to the people. And it turns out that's really flexible. It's allowed Norway to adjust its system over time from being a, um, you know, a pure monarchy to a kind of you know, wonderful place that everyone wants to move to. Everyone in Norway is a millionaire. That's probably not attributable to the Constitution. But uh, certainly the, the Constitution has endured because it's been changed very often, as Jefferson said, not treated with sanctimonious reverence, but updated um, with the times as conditions have changed. This figure shows the number of provisions amended in the Norwegian Constitution per year uh, from 1800 onward, and the comparable figure for the United States. And you see that basically constitutional amendment has been taken off the table from the early 1800s with a couple of um, you know, subsequent periods when we've, when we've um, added a few. Um, Norway, on the other hand, has changed it at least three times a decade since the 1850s. And these aren't, you know, short-term policy things. They're small things allowing the system to adjust. Um, things like expanding the franchise, changing the rules of parliament, um, making the political system more viable. Now, I'm not suggesting we should be Norway. That would be too much and would surely risk physical violence. Um, and also, we don't have that much oil. But um, the point is that there are other ways to do things that might give us, um, you know, some of the benefits that we attribute to our own constitution. Think for a moment if the founders had adopted, let's say, the Norwegian rule for constitutional amendment and not the American rule. Well, we probably would have had more constitutional amendment. But what else would we have had? We probably would have had um, less emphasis on the courts as a means of you know, governing our lives, as a means of pursuing constitutional amendment. In Norway, they have a court which has had the power of judicial review since the mid-19th century. They never exercise it. The courts are the courts. They're good courts. But they do law. They don't do policy. They don't govern us. And, uh, you know, they have a vigorous system of party politics, which people are involved in. They fight about policy, like how to spend the oil money. Um, But the point is that it really might be a very different way of doing things and not necessarily a worse one. Um, I actually think it's pretty interesting to think about what the global world would have looked like, what my data would have looked like if the United States had adopted a more flexible amendment formula. In my view, the Americans are the sort of source of the idea of judicialized governance, of the idea where the courts exercising judicial review should be able to get involved in all kinds of areas of public life. Um, And, um, you know, if the Americans had not done that, if they had not been forced to in a way through constitutional amendment, how different would global political practice be? Well, it is as well a kind of a, um, you know, a speculation. That's all I can do. Uh, but I do suggest that it does matter. Um, you know, I don't want to, in concluding, uh, uh, you know, sort of suggest that I don't venerate the Founding Fathers. Pretty great group of guys. They're remembered for their important and enduring debates about uh, political theory more influential, I think, than, they would, have, than would, they would have ever expected. Indeed, if they'd been called back for my fictitious constitutional convention, they'd be stunned to learn that their document was still being used. I think they'd be completely surprised by that. Their view was that republics were doomed to decline. And so this, I think they've had success in a way beyond their wildest dreams. But it's also true that going back, uh, they would, I'm sure be amenable to the idea that the document ought to be changed, ought to um, uh, change with the times. Certainly Jefferson, in whose honor this lecture is named, 
had that view. Our practice has been perhaps more Madisonian than Jeffersonian, um, but I think there, there you know, are some, certainly some costs to that. Well, in concluding, I want to quote, uh, conclude with a quote from Patrick Henry, which I do think is a kind of fitting uh, quote for a Jefferson lecture. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging the future uh, but by the past. This is what the founders would do if they came back today. They would look back, they would see what worked, and they would come up with some institutions which would serve us. And um, I think that'd be a, a wonderful thing if it could somehow happen, which of course it won't. Um, I do worry that if we do end up con- calling the Constitutional Convention, I don't think we'll proceed with the wisdom of the Founding Fathers. Thanks very much. Many pleasures involved in being uh, chairman of the Jefferson Lectures Committee. One of them is I have the prerogative of asking the first question. You haven't mentioned slavery and the Civil War with regard to the American constitutional design, and I had a very hard time listening to you, Tom, thinking how Norway would have handled that. Yeah. Perhaps you'd speak to that most divisive issue of all. Right. Great. Well, um, Norway's obviously not a federal country. It's much smaller, it's much poorer when it was first founded. They did have their own versions of exclusive um, and racist uh, behavior. So the original Norwegian constitution bans Jesuits and Jews from entering the country. Um, and it took a while. I think it took them three or four decades, and they allowed Jews in. I don't think they allowed Jesuits until like 1958. Uh, so it took a really long time. Their um, whole thrust of their constitutional trajectory, as ours, has been towards greater inclusion, um, and um, you know, and that's that seems to have um, been pretty effective. You know, um, I think that in terms of how it, your question provokes the que- the thought about would the political system have done better than the judicial system? And our own history suggests that Dred Scott is considered a failed case, a failed judicial um, attempt to intervene in a very uh, you know. Um, difficult political situation. So I think I'll stop with that. There's okay, no more. Thank you. My name is Mike Beller. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I have a question about judicial review uh, relating to the rigidity of the American Constitution and its survival. Uh, first, do you, to what extent do you think the uh, institutionalization of judicial review and interpretation of laws and constitution uh, has perpetuated the survival and the rigidity of the American and or the rigidity of the American Constitution and from a broader perspective uh, in the spirit that you've spoken uh, from today, is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. Great. Um, well, you know, I think it's conventional wisdom that many of the little things that we'd like to change in the Constitution and we can't, right? And so they do get worked out in the course of concrete cases um, and through the exercise of judicial power. Um, has judicial review extended the life of the republic? I mean, you know, I suppose the conventional wisdom it didn't do a very good job before the Civil War, didn't do a real good job after the Civil War when it starts to become more vigorously entertained. It's not really until the 1930s that we cel- begin to celebrate the role of the courts in, and basically their role is allowing the government to do things it wanted to do. Um, but, you know, I think in the more modern period, and you, 
Professor Scheiber brought up the problem of slavery, and you could say the problem of civil rights in the, in the Warren Court era um, are you know, equivalent things. How do you change entrenched social practice? Um, there's a large debate in the literature on the role of the courts. Is it good or bad? It's one that's been revisited now um, in, with regard to gay rights. And um, you know, many of the uh, foremost advocates of social change are telling the courts to stay out of it because they can only mess things up if they get involved. Um, so I think it's a really deep and good question as to whether they've, um, they've done more harm than good in this country. Um, but, and so, you know, and I tend to be someone who thinks that, uh, well, like everyone else, I like the courts when they decide the way I want things decided, and I don't like it when they don't. Um, and, of course, that's not a very good theory of sort of judicial legitimation. Um, it's been pretty good for rights in the post-war era, and um, there's a lot of sort of darker chapters in the history of judicial review. No questions? Years ago, I heard a uh, talk by the great historian David Potter. He asked a similar question about federalism. He goes, he didn't like something I'd written about federalism being a great failure. And he said, it was a great success. We had a civil war, but we didn't have it for 60 years. Yeah. <laughs> and federalism is responsible for holding the nation together for 60 years, and then it couldn't do it anymore. Malcolm Feely. Professor Feely. Yeah, Malcolm Feely. Uh, is, uh, is the Constitution done a good job of protecting federalism? You know, I was thinking about this question, and you know it far better than me. But to me, the uh, federalism in the United States has been, I think, a, a great success story, uh, again, after Civil War, right? That um, it's allowed a kind of adjustment over time uh, from a system which was very much leaning towards the subunits, towards one that has, of course, become much more centralized. Uh, and yet, it's not centralized all the way. There's still sort of a role for state governments. They aren't. The, the theoretical challenge of federalism is the following. We um, ask government, why do we have government? We have government to produce certain public goods, right? National defense being the paradigm one. Um, you might say something like criminal justice or welfare policy are things which don't need to be produced at the level of the nation state, but can be much more responsive to local conditions. And um, so the, the, the theoretical question about the allocation of powers in a federal system is at what level are the public goods produced and are best produced and uh, assign the power to that level. And I think the um, success of our system is that we've allowed that to change over time. It hasn't been rigid um, as the, it's been responsive to the, in some cases, surely not all, but uh, responsive to the fact that certain public goods are best produced at the level of the nation state. Um, I should say, just as, a, as an aside, you know, this is, of course, the challenge of global governance now, that we're living in an era where certain public goods and think of climate change and things like that can't be produced or can't be accomplished of a, by a system of independent nation states, um, yet we lack the governance structures to, um, to accommodate them. But I think within the United States, it's done a pretty good job of shifting over time. As I listened to your account of the amendments in Norway, they sounded like items that our political system has handled in many different ways, and not just the judicial route that you've talked about, but congressionally and in all sorts of other ways. So I wonder, are you asking the right question by asking about the amendability of the Constitution or would it be more productive to ask a question about 
more generally, how can changes be made? Good. So you're right that the substance of things can be dealt with in many ways. Many of the things dealt with in a constitution in one country can be dealt with through legislation in another, uh, and there's no uniform substance to a constitution in that sense. Um, um, so you know the key thing, if you're trying to evaluate a constitutional scheme's performance on some dimension, like the inclus- inclus- inclusivity of the you know, political process, one need not look just to constitutions. But I'm really making just the smaller point, which is that flexibility need not necessarily doom a constitution, that, that um, one need not have um, an overly rigid one in order to uh, be maintained uh, for a long duration or to generate veneration. Because if you go and you talk with the people of Norway, they're really into their constitution. They may not know what's in it. They may not be able to read the original Danish from 1814, but they really love it and they care about it. And in some ways, it's not that different from us. I mean, the Tea Party folks carry around copies of the Constitution, but I'm not sure they really, you know, well, have read every single clause or, um, uh, you know, exactly, you know, or uh, I can't imagine that they venerate all bits of the text equally, the $20 suits and such. Uh, Tom, so um, so l- let me just um, frame a counterfactual for you. So this kind of this this presentation is directed to an American audience, right? And the and the question is, how would we ch- how if we had a moment of constitutional choice, yeah, how, would we make a different choice? And, and you know, if we were, if we if we cared about the evidence. So let me flip it around. So let's say that you're actually in another country right now, where there is a moment of constitutional choice, and the question becomes. Um, is there any particular feature of the American Constitution that has stood up, stood, you know, that, that stands up in the face of the evidence as being something of particular value, right, that we would want to adopt? Because, you know, the, the, the slide you put up there with the, you know, the 120-year-old um, French citizen who yeah. basically smoked and drank and so forth that you juxtaposed against the American document implied that the American Constitution has no redeeming feature at all, yeah. right? That can't be your claim. No. Right, or maybe it is. But 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 so is there? If you've, is there not? Is there some feature of the American document? Or are there features that have been validated by experience over the last couple of centuries that that, that basically other drafters should consider strongly? Absolutely. So um, the first point, of course, is that the ver- by producing the first written constitution for a nation state, they provided the very grammar by which the whole enterprise proceeds and. Um, you know, and have been extraordinarily influential because of that um, in both particular design choices and broader principles like checks and balances, like separation of powers. These kind of things, these principles seem to be ones which um, do have maybe universal, um, well, um, often very widespread popularity and widespread attachment to them. In terms of particular choices, it's odd that uh, judicial review is mentioned nowhere in the United States Constitution, and I've been somewhat critical of it, um, and yet, it is something which I think we all do recognize now in the modern era in one of uh, uh, potentially rights-harming uh, governments is of great value and one that uh, kind of contribution to civilization. So, um, and of course, courts around the world, at least until fairly recently, until the rise of the German Constitutional Court and others, would look to the American court as the paragon of exercising this important power. You do need checks, you do need um, accountability institutions, and the Americans are, you know, the ones who came up with that. So I certainly don't want to suggest that we shouldn't, uh, we should avoid all of Jean Calmet's diet. No doubt, some of those things are good in certain proportions. I. <laughs> 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.